Earlier this week, uh, of course, the news broke about that leak in the Supreme Court and a decision that uh, has created quite a bit of controversy. I want to just say that we here at Calvary do believe that life begins at conception and ends when that last breath is taken that God gives a person, and so we value the sanctity of life. And so we appreciate and celebrate when the laws of the land reflect that, but we also know that, that the way real deep change happens over time is not through the changing of votes or the changing of courts, but the changing of hearts. And so we're not sent out by Christ to make a moralistic society. We're sent out to see people come to Jesus. And as lives are changed and families are changed and neighborhoods are changed, communities are changed, a state is changed, a nation is changed, the world is changed. And so these things are lag indicators, and we continue to want to bring the hope of Christ to heart so that people, not because it's a law, but because they love God and they value life from his perspective as given in the scriptures, and that they will make choices based on that. Again, we appreciate and celebrate those reflections of those things, but let's together remember it's about us sharing our faith in and out day to day with other people that turns the world upside down, just like the, the earliest church in the first century did. And I also want to mention that we need to have compassion for those. I've met many people in the course of my pastoral career, many women who made the choice to have an abortion and live with some of the guilt and shame. And the way we talk about it, the way we discuss it, is not just about politics, it's about human lives and it's about caring for the unborn and their right, but it's also about being compassionate and caring for those who are uh, recovering. We even in our care ministry at times have support groups that are of help to that. Just to keep that in mind and keep that balance and focus as we move forward as a church. Now, the passage we're going to look at today is found in Genesis chapter 16. If you want to go there, Genesis chapter 16, you can open your Bible and join me there in a hard copy of the Bible or maybe have a mobile app on your mobile phone. And we're going to be talking about a woman that we don't often look at on Mother's Day, but this is a woman who's expecting, and she is isolated and alone. We're going to look at a woman named Hagar. Before we get there, I want to just share with you a few uh, Mother's Day cards I came across this week as I was thinking about Mother's Day and what that means to us uh, here at Calvary and for moms and kids, and there are a lot of different emotions around Mother's Day but I saw one of those kind of traditional cards, a Hallmark card that just said, you're obviously the world's best mom. And just, you know, that really good card. And then, of course, there are those cards that kind of have to take a jab at dad a little bit, you know. And then there are other cards where it's focused on me. The one card says, who needs a Mother's Day present when you already have me? How nice of that is that child? And then, like I said, some even take a hit at dad. This one, you know, it's not easy being a mom. If it were, dad would do it. <laughs> then this one about where the child gets their attitude, this pie chart. When people ask me where I get my attitude from, and then you've got the dad section is supposed to be blue or teal. You see it has nothing on the pie chart. The orange is mom, and then the red is also mom. <laughs> then even dealing with what's become real popular today, Wordle, I love this one. You mean the Wordle to me. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Then the kind of silly puns like, I love you loads, Mom, with the familiar washing machine and dryer. My favorite, though, is this one. Good moms let you lick the beaters. Great moms turn them off first. <laughs> well, I want to talk about this woman, Hagar, in the Old Testament in Genesis 16. I want to talk about what every mother needs to know. As you come in here as moms, and really this is what every one of us who are followers of Christ need to know about our lives, 
that we're going to go through ups and downs. Sometimes we go through storms and we go through periods where it feels like we're going through a fog or we're in complete darkness. We feel alone and isolated that no one notices us, that the cry of our heart isn't heard by anyone. We, we can feel that way. And that's how Hagar felt. And I know for even some moms that are here, maybe you've gone through periods of strained relationship with adult children. Maybe you've got uh, just some issues related to the needs of your family and you're worried and concerned about some things. Perhaps you've gone through a miscarriage or some have lost a child. I know in my years of pastoring, I think there's no deeper pain than a person who has, a parent who has lost a child. Not just a child at, at birth or a young child, but when a child is an adult, it just doesn't seem right and that is a deep pain. And all of us go through ups and downs and twists and turns of life that are complex and heavy. What do we do when we feel isolated and alone? Well, here's what every mother needs to know in Genesis 16 in this story of Hagar. We, as we approach Genesis, Genesis 16, we have to know where we are. We're 4,000 years ago, 2,000 years before Christ walked on earth. A man named Abraham and Sarah have been called by God and God has promised Abraham that Abraham, you'll have a son, and through that son will be a great nation, and that great nation will bring forth the Messiah, and that Messiah will ultimately be a blessing to all the nations. And Abraham gets this promise when he's 75 and his wife is 65, and they've had no children. When God makes this promise in Genesis chapter 12, Sarah even laughs because this is impossible. She's beyond her childbearing years. They go through a number of things in those 10 years. They've been brought to the promised land God had for them. And now in Genesis 16, we are 10 years after that. And Abraham now is 85 and she is 75 and it's hard for them to see this promise ever being fulfilled. And so they come up with their own plan. It's very dangerous when you try to be God and you try to fulfill what you think God wants you to do or God's promise to you in your own way. When we try through human means to accomplish what God says he's gonna do, we usually create turmoil for us and for others and we live with those consequences. And that's what happens here in Genesis chapter 16. They go with a plan that they devise because they no longer are patient and can trust God to fulfill his promise of a son being born to them. And so we read in Genesis 16 verse one, now Sarai, Abram's wife, now these are their names before they're changed later in the narrative, in the story by God. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Now they had spent some time when they didn't trust God before in, in Egypt and, and uh, God made it so that Pharaoh wanted to let them go and they were released and uh, they again didn't trust God. They tried to find their own solution but it appears here Hagar joins their household and she is a slave. She is a maidservant but she's probably someone who has a close, intimate relationship with Sarah, and there is a, she's her confidant in this kind of setting in this culture. Some ancient Jewish traditions say she was actually the daughter of, one of the daughters of Pharaoh, and she was given as kind of a, a giveaway, a go away, leave us alone from the, the things that have happened to us, the judgment your God has brought on us. And so she is a part of this household, and she, so she said to Abram, verse two, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Again, to our 21st century mindset, this is odd. And what she's suggesting is he take Hagar as his wife and that those children born to her will really be credited to Sarah and that this will fulfill their house and it will fulfill, the, will fulfill their house and fulfill the promise of God. 
very culturally acceptable in that day, and as the law would be written years after this, not acceptable before God, and it creates a great deal of havoc. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So after, Adam, after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She begins to say, I'm better than you because I am gonna bear Abraham a child. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. She's been used and abused and mistreated. She's expecting a child and she goes on the run She flees from this whole situation. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. A couple things here. This spring where it is, is in the middle of the desert between where she had left Abraham and Sarah, and it says that she's on her way. It's on the road to Shur. Those, that was a, a population of people that were on the outskirts of Egypt. She's trying to head home, but apparently she's kind of run out of energy, and, and she's just discouraged and depressed and alone. She's in the middle of the desert and isolated. She feels invisible. She's about to be a mother, but she's not celebrating. There's a heaviness on her heart. And again, I don't know what heaviness you've gone through as a mother. I don't know what heaviness perhaps you're in right now. Or maybe what you'll face in the weeks and years to come. But there are seasons when we, any of us, whether we're a mother or not, can feel invisible and unheard. We can feel isolated and alone. And there are such great principles to learn from Hagar in her situation. Verse 7 said, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. The angel of the Lord. And when you read an angel in the Old Testament, it is an angel, a messenger created by God, sent by God to give a message. But most scholars of Scripture understand that when you read the angel of the Lord, it's what's called a theophany, an appearance of God in an angelic form. Some even suggest it's a Christophany, an appearance of God the Son before he walked on earth. But this angel of the Lord is the very presence of God. And so God himself shows up to Hagar, who's been mistreated, abused, cast aside. She said to flee because of the tension. And now she's alone and she's perhaps thirsty and hungry and and desperate. And the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring. And then verse eight, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now I wanna stop right here and point out that this is not the basis upon which you determine in ministry if you're going to send people back to their abuser or not. As a matter of fact, uh, this is a unique scenario. In in our pastoral leadership here at Calvary, when we determine that a wife or a child has been abused, we do all we can to get them away from the abuser. Even if a husband is abused, we get them away from the abuser. We try to find them a place of isolation, often a place of secrecy through Nonprofits or government agencies because you want to remove the person from that abusive situation. You don't want to use scripture to force them back under abuse, and this scripture should never be used that way. We are very clear about that, and if a crime has been committed, we report that crime. 
then we also try to work to help the one who is abusing to find forgiveness and healing and restoration and develop new patterns so perhaps God can bring healing and restoration in that family situation. But this is unique in that it is God himself saying go back and if you understand the rest of her story and you pick up the story in Genesis 21, 14 years later when her son Ishmael is 14 years of age and she again is on the run and she's fleeing and God meets her again in the desert and ministers to her again and lets him know he's present. You see a pattern in those 14 years that when she goes back, she, it doesn't appear she's abused any longer and it appears God protects her in that household. Only God could say that to her and know that she could be protected by his hand. And that's why that situation comes up here. As a matter of fact, Abraham has a great relationship with his son Ishmael for the first 14 years until the son God had promised Isaac is born 14 years after Ishmael is born. So be careful to understand the scripture in light of all of scripture and who it is God could ensure her safety in that situation. Verse 10, then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Maybe she thought she was gonna die and her child inside her womb would die with her. But, but the angel promises there's gonna be, there are gonna be a number of descendants. The only other one that God said this to was Abraham in scripture. The angel of the Lord also said to her, verse 11, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. Ishmael means the Lord hears. The Lord hears. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So she responds to the angel of the Lord because she's been alone, invisible, downcast, abused, mistreated, worried for the baby in her womb, and she realizes that God has noticed her in her situation. God sees her, and so she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered, verse 15. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave him the name Ishmael, recognizing what his mother had said God had told her to the son she had born. Abraham was sixty was eighty-six years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. It would be another fourteen years before the child of the promise, Isaac, would be born. I want to make a couple of observations here that we need to know when we're going through the difficult days. We go through times of isolation. We feel mistreated, abused, wronged by others. We feel like there's no clear path forward as Hagar felt. Number one, God knows your name. God knows your name. If you read the passage again, you read the whole chapter again, you'll realize that only the narrator calls her Hagar and the angel of the Lord calls her Hagar. Abraham and Sarah never call her by her name in the story. They refer to her as your slave, the servant girl. But the angel of the Lord shows up and the first word out of his mouth is her name. You know, a name is very powerful in the scriptures. The Old Testament, we're told the name of the Lord is a strong tower. We can run into it for safety and security. When Peter and John were asked, in what name have you preached this gospel message? In what name have you healed this man who was lame? In Acts chapter four, verse 12, they say, it's the name of Jesus. And they say, and there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we can be saved. It's the only name that rescues anyone. Before I go any further, to really understand the power of God knowing your name, you have to know the name of Jesus. You have to put your faith in the one who died, was buried, and was raised for you. 
It is in the name of Jesus and only the name of Jesus that we can have forgiveness, have an eternal life with him, and have him walk with us today and have the opportunity to live in his kingdom and live out his kingdom values today as he walks with us through the mountaintops and the deep valleys of life. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, do so right now where you sit. Put your faith in the name of Jesus. It represents who he is and what he's done for you. If you have questions about that or I can help you, you want me to celebrate with you, today's the day you put your faith in Jesus, the only way to be right with God, to walk with him through life and even into eternity, then I'll be in the lobby. I'd love to chat with you there. Our care and prayer team will be down front after the service. They're always there to pray with you over any need you might have. Maybe you're a mom today and you have a heavy heart. You can come down and pray with them. They're here and available. Then perhaps you in the room or maybe online, it would be more convenient with the schedule of your day and all to text the name Jesus to the number below me on the screen and we'll send you some resources of what it means to have put your faith in the name of Jesus and how you now walk with him as, as your savior. And we'll follow up with you this week, but make sure you know that name. When you know the name of Jesus, then it is powerful when you understand he knows your name. God knows your name even when no one else does. Leslie and I took our kids to Uganda in 2015. They were in high school and junior high, and, and we wanted them to see a mission field. And We were a God care school that we support here at Calvary, and we were at the high school chapel. They were singing some songs, and they got to this song that was written by a worship leader here in Southern California, Tommy Walker. The song was called, He Knows My Name. These are students at the school. Some of them know their parents. Some of them don't know one of their parents. Some of them don't know either of their parents have been raised by an aunt, a neighbor. They, they, they don't have a clear connection. There hasn't been someone who knew their name and directly loved them in a powerful way like a parent, a mother, a father. To hear those kids sing this song with tears streaming down, these teenagers in Africa singing, I have a maker, he formed my heart. Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. Can you imagine what it was like for Hagar? Exhausted physically, emotionally worried for the child inside her. To have the angel of the Lord show up and say her name, Hagar. Whatever you're going through, however overlooked, invisible, marginalized, hurting you feel, God knows your name even when no one else does. Secondly, God loves you even when others have rejected you. They have mistreated her. She feels rejected. She runs. But part of what the angel of the Lord says to her is, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. He says that in verse nine. You feel like this is the end. You feel like it's over. You have nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. You feel desperate. You feel abandoned. You feel alone. But I have news for you. I love you. And I have a plan for your child. And he gives to her a promise that had only been given to Abraham directly that there would be many descendants, too numerous to count. God loves you even when others have rejected you. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Maybe you're a mom here today and you're crushed in spirit over something going on in your life. God loves you. He knows the way forward. He is with you. 
Maybe you're not a mom, but you feel crushed in spirit because there's something going on in your life. God knows your name, and he loves you. God knows your name. God loves you. Thirdly, God hears you when you cry. God hears you when you cry, even when no one else can. She's alone in the desert by this spring, this, this well, and she's there, and she cries, and, and her heart is heavy. You see her crying in Genesis 21 when the boy is 14, and, and they leave because Isaac has been born, and God promises to take care of her. And in the middle of the desert, she puts her son at a distance from her behind a tree because as they both die, she can't stand to see her son die in the desert. And then God again meets her there and takes her forward, leads her to a spring, and protects both Hagar and Ishmael because he heard her cry, like he did in Genesis 16, he does in Genesis 21. God hears you when you cry, even when no one else can. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord says here, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Name him Ishmael, that'll be a reminder that God hears. So every time she said her son's name, she was reminded, God hears my cry. Maybe you've had some tears. Maybe you've cried out to God and you feel like he's not hearing you. You can't seem to get through to your child or maybe you can't get through to your spouse or maybe it's not even a parenting issue that you're crying out about. And as a follower of Christ, you just, you just feel like no one hears. God hears you when you cry. He promised to her that he heard her. He hears you. Fourthly, God understands and shapes your whole story. God understands and shapes your whole story even when you can't. She, she really has no power in her life. She's been abused and mistreated, she's pregnant. Perhaps she's dealing with morning sickness, maybe just the heat of the desert is getting to her. She knows this isn't good for her baby, it isn't good for her. She can't see her way forward, she can't see her way back. God understands and shapes your whole story, even you can't. He's sovereignly shaping what's going on for your good, the good of your family, for the good of others, ultimately for his glory. Sometimes he allows us to go through the storm, not around it, because he knows that ultimately it is for our good, the good of others, and his glory. But he's going to be there with us, knowing our name, loving us, hearing our cry. He understands and shapes your whole story, even when you can't. The angel of the Lord says to her in verse eight, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Well, I was with these people and that was a mess and that didn't look good and I'm trying to get here but I don't think I'm gonna make it and maybe you're a mom and you feel that way today. This is what I thought it was gonna be. I thought our family would be like this. I thought when I got married, I thought when I had children I, and then I can't see my way forward in this relationship or maybe, you're, again, you're not a mom but you feel that same. I, 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 the past is cloudy. The, future seems hopeless, but God understands and knows your whole story. He wants you to feel forgiveness and healing and restoration from the past. He wants you to have hope and faith toward the future. God understands and shapes your whole story even when you can't. Hagar, where are you coming from? Where are you going? Fifth and finally, yes, God knows your name. God loves you. God hears you when you cry. He's shaping and understands your whole story even when you can't. Fifth and finally, God sees you. This is what grabs Hagar's heart. God sees you even when you feel invisible to everyone else. I've met working moms. I've met stay-at-home moms. I've met empty nester moms. I've met grandmothers. I've met 
women who want to be moms and they're struggling with fertility issues. I, I, I've met women who feel invisible for one reason or another at a stage of life and a stage of their parenting, the stage of their family. And I want to say to you, if you feel invisible, if you feel overlooked and marginalized, God sees you. He notices what you're going through. You know, in hearing you, there's a cry that comes from you first. In seeing you, it's constant. Wherever you go, he sees you. You can be unconscious conscious, and he sees you. In Psalm 139 that Sarah started the whole service with, he sees us even in our mother's room. He saw Ishmael inside Hagar. He saw Hagar in the middle of the desert. He sees you, and she gets it as these words are spoken, these words of hope to her and a future and God's care for her and for her child. She gets it. So in verse 13, it says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. El Royi, the God who sees. It's one of the names of God in Scripture. It's used elsewhere in Scripture from this point forward. She is the only character in all of Scripture who ascribes a name to the Lord that then is used by God's people following. All the other names of God that we get are given by a prophet, by an angel, by God himself, by Christ. But this name is ascribed by this mother in the loneliness of the desert. She says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. She even names that well, that spring, the place where I have seen God. This week, wherever you go, again, whether you're a mom or not, this is for everyone, every follower of Christ. When you're at home, when you're at work, when you're in the car, wherever you go, at the store, can I encourage you in every situation, at least three or four times a day this week, just to say, God, you see me here in the car. God, you see me on this highway. You see me in this traffic jam. God, you see me here at home. You see me here in my tears. You see me in this great success in this business meeting. You see me, you see me. Why is it important for us? Because when we recognize that God sees and hears us, that he loves us and knows us by name, we can then begin to see his hand shaping our story. Just three or four times a day, find a different location that maybe isn't normal for you and just say, you know what, you see me in this parking lot. God, you see me. You are the God who sees. Jeremiah 24, 6 says, my eyes will watch over them for their good. He sees you. And I don't know what kind of loneliness or isolation or kind of feeling invisible you're going through as a mother or as a follower of Christ. But can I tell you what we learn about the story of Hagar and her encounter with the angel of the Lord God in the presence of an angel? Whatever you're going through, God knows your name. God loves you. God hears your cry. God is actively a part of shaping your whole story and God sees you, even when you feel completely invisible. Jesus would say it, as he was talking to his followers, he would talk about sparrows. You know, sparrows, no matter what variety of sparrow, all around the world, they're, they're some of the smallest birds. They don't really sing that much. They don't really, they don't talk like parrots. They don't have homing instincts like a pigeon. They don't have any meat in their bones. I don't think any of us are going to say, come on over for Thanksgiving, for, or we're going to have the... Thanksgiving sparrow today. And Jesus talks about how they seem worthless, but that he says, my father cares for even the insignificant sparrow. 
Listen to what he said in Matthew 10, 29 to 31. What is the price of two sparrows? One copper coin, but not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Maybe some of you know the old hymn written in 1904 by Sevilla Martin. The words penned by her, the music that were was a comp- that accompanied those words were written by the music was written by Charles Gabriel 1904 great hymn his eye is on the sparrow not long before this song was written the late 19th century a woman named Ethel Waters was born she was born to a mother who had been raped at age 13 she was the product of that encounter her life was broken from the start out the water. She was raised by a grandmother and some aunts, but it was a chaotic upbringing there in the Philadelphia area. And so she struggled and life was difficult to the point that Ethel Waters herself was married and divorced by the age of 13. But she began to be noticed for her singing ability and even her acting. She got into vaudeville and then she was able to get into Broadway. And in her 20s, she began to get roles on Broadway and finally into the 30s and 40s and 50s, she began to get opportunities in movies. And in 1952, she was in a movie called The Member of the Wedding. In this movie, Ethel Waters plays the nanny to some children. And there's a point at which they're concerned and fearful and scared and and she sings a song. She sings it a cappella. And the song is, His Eye is on the Sparrow. And producers and directors and other actors say, this is so unusual. It's, she wasn't just singing it as an actress. They could tell she was singing it from her heart. And she would later say that her grandmother had taught her that song and taught her that whatever you're going through in life, remember God sees you just as his eye is on the sparrow. His eye is on you. From the mid-1950s till her death in the mid-1970s, Ethel Waters would sing His Eye is on the Sparrow at numerous Billy Graham crusades. Many say that her singing that song opened their heart to receive the gospel message that Graham would preach later in the evening. Later in life, she wrote her own autobiography telling of some of the horrors of her childhood and of her early marriage and she titled her autobiography, His Eye is on the Sparrow. Just like Hagar said, you are the God who sees me. You are Elroy. Jesus said, God cares for you more than the sparrow. So if his eye is on the sparrow, he cares for you. And Jesus becomes so precious. Our relationship with God through our Savior becomes so precious when we understand his eye is on the sparrow. Just to allow that concept that God sees you. His eye is on you just as much as it's on the sparrow. Let it sink into your heart and mind. 